Hello people, bit of a smaller bunch today isn't it, long weekend, um, we can be tempted to feel like, oh wish I was camping, <laughs> um, it, or is that just me, it's just, might just be, we, we can be tempted to uh, have FOMO with kind of weekends like this, so um, how about I pray that the Lord remind us just how good it is to be together as his people uh, under his voice. Uh, Father, please do that. Uh, Give us spiritual insight and uh, we do thank you for the gift of gathering as your people, uh, free from persecution this morning, that we can freely read and sing and celebrate the goodness of Jesus. And so might we make the most of that? Uh, Might you sink it deep into our heart? Uh, For those who are wobbling, I pray, please, that you might strengthen and uh, pray that we might rejoice in being your people in all the goodness of the gospel and and that in turn, Lord, we might be a light to the community um, as we point people to the light of the world, Jesus. So we pray this in his name. Amen. How can you be confident that Christianity is true? How can you have confidence that the Christian message is true? A message about unseen things, spiritual things. How can you be confident that there is the unseen God? The reality of heaven and hell. There are all sorts of things that can bump into our life to cause us to question the spiritual beliefs that we have. Those moments, I'm sure many of you have had, is, is this all true? Or am I just kind of living a spiritual make-believe myth? You know, there's, there's five major religions in the world, a thousand offshoots as well. How can I be sure that Christianity is the one that puts me in touch with the one true God? We heard before, the Bible is the source of truth. How can we be so confident? Suffering comes, things bump into our life that shake our faith. Uh, The doctor brings news of the diagnosis. Precious relationships end and tear. Unemployment strikes, you wonder how you're going to get through. How can we be confident that we really do have a heavenly father who is working all things for our good? Then there's the ridicule that we face. Our kid who sits in a science lesson and is beaten up by the teacher for faith in the guy in the sky. The uni lecturer that mocks the very idea of the Christian faith. The heat that is heating up around the beliefs that we hold around who we are as people, the shape of our lives. How do we persevere in the face of opposition, things that are unpopular, And then there's just the challenge of living by faith, not sight. Of entrusting our lives to a man, Jesus Christ, that we've never seen. We've never touched. We've never had a conversation with. And I entrust everything to this one. How do we guard our faith from death by a thousand little doubts? Well, God has given us a bunch of things to guard and grow our faith, that the Christian message is true. One of the big things that makes Christianity unique is history. 
the very fact that what we're dealing with here happened in a real place, in a real time with real people that we have evidence and documents about. It happens every Easter and Christmas. You see the article go around social media that says, Jesus was just the invention of the early church. Didn't actually even exist. Happens every year. Uh, John Dixon, many of you will know him, an Aussie uh, professor in ancient history. It was back in 2011, he put out a tweet and he said, if anyone can point me to any ancient professor of, uh, any ancient professor, a professor of ancient history who believes that Jesus did not exist, then I'll eat a page of my Bible. And of course, the internet has just queued up wanting to see John eat his Bible. Twelve years on, his Bible's still intact. Because there is no, even non-Christian, professor of ancient history that will deny that Jesus is a man of history. There's all sorts of things we could look to. We could look to the reliability of the transmission of the documents that we have, that what we have in our hand is what was written in the first place. We could look at the wonder of prophecy. Did you realise we had two readings there? One of them was from a thousand years before Jesus. And if we continue to read, we will see details that are amazingly fulfilled a thousand years on in Jesus. Hundreds of prophecies we could look to. But the thing that I want to draw our attention to this morning is one thing that God has given us to guard and grow our faith... It's the most autobiographical letter of the Apostle Paul that we have in the New Testament. And in particular, it is the most extended list of his suffering that the Lord God has given us, you, me, that we might have confidence that the Christian message is true. That's my goal for us this morning as we consider it, that as followers of Jesus your faith might be guarded, that it might be grown, particularly if you are in a place of doubt. Uh, Maybe some of those things have come into your life, you're questioning whether it's all true. And for the rest of us who aren't suffering now or don't have those doubts now, to be able to tuck away for when they do come, because they will. Or maybe some of you are here, you're not Christians, you're not followers of Jesus. I wonder why is that? Is it because you think there is no evidence for it to be true? Well, I really hope you will listen in to give this a hearing. This passage that we've got, chapter 11, verse 16 through to 33, divides up into three parts. My plan is to just walk us through this before drawing those connections to us. And the context is that of Paul boasting. The Apostle Paul who is doing a big boast. And so the first chunk answers the question, well, why is he boasting? Um, If there's one thing that's truly Australian, it's that we don't like people who are full of themselves. Yeah? We don't like boasters. The person at the party who just keeps talking about themselves and all they've done and all they've got. We'll be sure to cut people down if people boast. I was listening to a podcast this week that interviewed the editor that put together... Uh, The Australia's Rich List, they do it each year where they get the top 50 people and rank them according to wealth. And it was interesting for a number of reasons. One of them was he pointed out the difference between the Australian Rich List and the American one. And as he talks to people on the Australian Rich List, many of them don't want to be on it. In fact, they go to great lengths to try and stay off it because they know it'll invite the tall poppy 
cut-down thing and probably also the tax office, <laughs> right? And some family and friends who, oh, yes, Uncle Sam. We don't like boasters, but he pointed out that the people who are on the American list, that's a badge of honour. They delight in it. They glory it. Aussies don't like boasters. It feels arrogant. It seems unchristian, and it is. So what's the Apostle Paul doing boasting? Well, that's how he begins this section. He answers that question. He doesn't want to. Have a look at verse 23. I am out of my mind to talk like this. Chapter 12, verse 11 summarises the context here. It says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles. Do you remember the historical situation here? Paul has planted the church in Corinth. He's left to, to continue doing the same, and others have come in behind him, but as false apostles, false teachers. And they are here boasting in themselves and actually leading the Corinthians astray, but they're spellbound. They're actually um, captivated by the false teachers. Chapter 11, verse 19. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. There's sarcasm here. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. Someone does that to you and you welcome them. Have you heard of Stockholm Syndrome? That's kind of what is happening here. Stockholm Syndrome finds its name from a real event that happened in the 1970s in the capital of Sweden, Stockholm, where there was a robber who came into a bank to steal from the bank and held four of the employees hostage in a room. But then this weird thing started to happen where there was this emotional attachment that grew between the hostages and their captor. The robber, who was treating them kindly. Oh, you're cold, let me get you a blanket, let me get you a jumper. And, and there was this weird affection that developed from the hostages to their captors so that when the police actually barged in, the hostages were pleading for the safety and the good of the captor. Even continued contentful and once free. It became known as Stockholm Syndrome, where a victim has an irrational attachment to their abuser. That's kind of what's going on here in Corinth, where these false teachers, as we saw last week, messengers of Satan, have come in and they're enchanted by them. And there's a thing about these false teachers that they boast about themselves and the Corinthians lap it up. And so Paul, he doesn't want to boast, but he enters into it because that's the language that they speak. That's the channel that they're tuned in on. He wants to get their attention by becoming a boaster. There's the first section he gives his reason for why he's going to speak in a way that he doesn't want to. Here's the second chunk, it's the longer bit, where he moves into what boasts. Okay, that's why he's going to boast, to get their attention. What's he going to boast about? Well, verse 22, he starts comparing himself with these false teachers. And there, there is comparison. Are they Hebrews? Me too. Israelites? Me too. Descendant of Abraham? Yep. Our heritage is the same. But verse 23 marks a sharp departure from Paul and these false apostles. He says, are they servants of Christ? 
I am more. Now, what do you expect him to reach for as he wants to point out how much more of a servant of Christ, the apostle of Christ, he is? Spectacular visions that he's had? Powerful miracles that he's worked? Deep, profound knowledge into God? He's got all of these, and he's going to mention, but what does he reach for here when he wants to show how much more of a true apostle he is? He's suffering. And he begins this list which is really an anti-boast. The thing that makes no sense to boast in. Let's just kind of walk our way through it. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently. All right, some of us can relate to working hard, and some of you are frequent flyers for work. Paul was a frequent felon. He was frequently imprisoned. As we work through this list, we've actually got to stop, slow down, pause and imagine that he could talk to us for an hour or two just on each couple of words between the commas. This really happened. And someone said to me after 8.30, if if this had happened to them, they would be in tears, the trauma, the PTSD, some of you can relate to that. Like this stuff really happened. He was frequently imprisoned. He's been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. Some of us might have had near-death experiences. Isn't that sudden thing where your life flashes before your eyes? Or that diagnosis that says the end is near? You know the, the, the grief, all that happens, living under that sense of imminent death. Paul had it over and over and over again. So that every birthday that he made was quite the miracle that he'd actually lived another year. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. This list here, we actually find the details, or the the condensed details of them anyway, in the book of Acts. Not all of them, but for some of them. Here's an example of one here, where we read that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. (laughs) That's the reaction I think we're supposed to have. You shake your head. If Paul were to play a sport, surely it would be rugby league as a front row forward. Gets smashed, but gets up again. Smashed, gets up again. Smashed, gets up again. And walks straight back in to the trouble. Verse 25. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Three times... Not once, not twice, three times. Can you imagine being shipwrecked? Uh, Imagine booking a holiday on a cruise and you're lining up to board and then Paul stands behind you. (laughs) You'd be like, no way. Or actually, maybe you would, because you know that you'll survive it if you stick with Paul. He's got nine lives. Verse 26. I have been constantly on the move. Some of you know what that's like to actually never be able to put down roots long enough before you pack up and move again. 
the relationships that you can't form and deepen, friends, family that you have to leave. You just feel like a foreigner wherever you are. Paul had no known address. He was constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers. I don't really know what the rivers were doing to him, but maybe some crocodiles in it. In danger from bandits. In danger from my fellow Jews. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the country. In danger at sea. And in danger from false believers. I've laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. You know, no matter what your week has been like, if someone asks you after church, how are you? You can say, well, at least I've got my clothes. Um, at least I probably had a bed to sleep in last night and a meal for breakfast. Can you imagine bumping into Paul after church and asking him, how you been, Paul? Oh, let me tell you about. There's the first set of trials that he, in very shorthand, but if you pause to try and picture it, horrific trials lists, before he moves to a second category of internal tribulations. Verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel it? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? It's just worth noting, by the way, as Paul speaks of his great anxiety here, this is the same man who wrote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Great verse. But the same man talks about his constant anxiety. We don't want to bring a simplistic mindset to struggles. There are good ones. There are right things for us to fear and to carry and to even carry constantly. It makes sense that Paul carries this one. Because he is utterly convinced that there is a God who is holy, who is righteous and before whom every human being will give an account of their lives which will fall far short, which will stand under God's judgment. But for looking to the Saviour, the Lord Jesus that God has sent, putting their trust in him that he has died and taken our punishment that we might be fully, freely set free from sin. Since Paul is so convinced of these realities, it makes sense that he carries the burden that the churches that he's planted, even the ones that he hadn't, would continue to trust in this Saviour. Because no matter what else happens in life, if your trust is not in the Saviour, you stand before this God unforgiven. And so it makes sense to have a daily concern. And just another thing for you parents, bear with me if it's not you, but it's right that you have that burden for your kids. You're grown-up kids, it's right. There's not something wrong there. There's the what of Paul's boasts. He reaches for the anti-boast. His suffering, trials and tribulations. Here's the third section there, verse 30 to 33, where he starts to answer why these boasts. Why has he reached for these? Now, he won't actually explicitly answer the question until the, the passage we look at next week. I'm looking at the preacher who's going to preach next week. I won't preach your sermon. 
And so we'll just have to hold off for the answer that he gives. But he starts to hint at it. Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Again, next week he'll lean into why he does that. But verse 32, he just gives one more, which I always found weird as I was reading the Bible. And um, it helps to actually understand some first century culture as context as he um, He talks about being lowered from a window down a city wall there. In Roman culture, there was a, as the army would swarm and surround a city, lay siege to it to take it, there was an award given to the first soldier who would scale his way up over the city wall as they then took the city. It was called the Corona Muralis, a crown that shows what a warrior, what strength, first one over the wall. And so what does Paul finish his list with? By reaching for a thing that really did happen to him as he was in great danger and the only way to get out of it was in a basket lowered down the city wall as he flees. This becomes emblematic of Paul's life and the things that he will boast in, his weakness now again, he'll, he'll move into why it is right to boast about weakness in the next passage. But for us now, I just want to move towards finishing by connecting this to the confidence that you and I have that the gospel is true. How does this actually help us trust that the Christian message is true? Well, it does involve thinking about suffering. And I don't have to convince you that, I think, to be human is to suffer. Job puts it well. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Now, it is true that some suffer more than others. And how do you explain that? There is a disproportionate, so it seems, amount of suffering. But all will suffer. And there's two kinds of trouble that we will meet in suffering. One of it just just finds us. We don't go searching for it, it'll just come. The cancer, the car accident, the thing that just happens and bang, everything is different. And I know this is true for some of you. But then there's the kind of trouble that comes directly because of the choices that we make. And and you can draw a nice kind of clear line between the trouble, the hardship and the choices that we made. So in some sense chose that trouble. That's the category of Paul's suffering. By choosing to give his life to spreading the news of Jesus, he was in effect choosing the life of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He was, in one sense, actually choosing this list. See, think about the lashes. Five times he told us that he received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jewish community. This is likely for the Jewish crime of proclaiming God to be here in the man, Jesus, who is the Messiah who hung on a pole under the curse of God. Blasphemy. To the Jewish ears, of course, it's what got Jesus crucified. And so Paul is whipped, lashed. 
His back is bare. And he picks himself up and he leaves that community and he walks into the next Jewish community. You know, his cloak's still sticking to his back. He knows that if he would just shut up about Jesus, his back will heal. And he knows that if he speaks about Jesus, they're going to lay into his raw back. Number two. Then he goes into the next one. Number three. And he just keeps doing it, knowing what will come of speaking of Jesus as the Lord's Messiah. Think about imprisonment. After the first time that he's locked up for preaching Jesus, he could have gone, man, if I just shut up, if I just live a quiet life, if I just go home to my leather business, put down roots, connect with my friends and family, I won't go back to jail. But he's frequently imprisoned because he keeps preaching Jesus. After the first shipwreck, he could have worked out, man, life is much safer on dry ground. I can do my business on dry ground. I can have my bed and sleep. I can have my food and not know hunger. But in order to get across the seas, to go across the world, he keeps getting on the boat no matter what danger comes. Do you see the point? He could have avoided this suffering. But he made choices knowing they would hurt him. Why? Well, not because he's a masochist, you know, some sick pleasure in pain. Not because he's a Bear Grylls adventure junkie. You know, it's possible, I was reading this with some people who pointed out that um, some people, particularly young men maybe, might look at this list and go, cool. <laughs> Imagine pulling that off in life. What an adventure. Until you slow down and actually experience some of that. He didn't do this because he was an adrenaline junkie. Why is this list here? Let me give you the big reason. And it's the big thing for us this morning. It's because he saw the resurrected Jesus. The reason for this list, the thing that explains the Apostle Paul, is the resurrection of Jesus. We can't prove this, we don't have any documents, but it's, it's quite possible, even likely, that Paul would have seen Jesus crucified. And if not, it didn't happen in a corner. It was well known that this man had been killed by Roman executioners whose job it was to kill people. Nails through the hands, a spear through the heart sack put into an empty tomb, spices put across him, a big stone rolled across, guarded. This man that Paul knew had died in this way was before him, was in front of him. He saw him and it changed Paul's life in a moment and it changed human history because of it. Just here's a taste of some of the things that are said to to, to Paul about him. It's said to Paul that the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, that's the resurrected Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Jesus says to him, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. And so we will write to the Corinthians, have I not seen Jesus 
our Lord? To see the emphasis there on what Paul saw. Not a vision, not a dream, but what, what he actually saw in front of him that he experienced and couldn't unsee. That, and that alone, explains 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Why else would anyone willingly embrace so much suffering unless they were utterly convinced that Jesus is alive, that the gospel is true? I've been through this kind of line of reasoning with people, and it's a great privilege to do that. I've I've had some people go, yeah, look, I, I can see how you're arguing in that way, but... Paul just might have been quite unstable, and I'm not sure I want to throw my, lot, my life in with an unstable man. And what, if, what do you do if you just write Paul off? Well, here's the thing. It's not just Paul who suffered like this, but all of the apostles that had seen the risen Jesus, both from the New Testament and then history outside of the New Testament. We have a, a record of the violent deaths of these first apostles who went around preaching Jesus was alive. James, it's in the New Testament, killed by the sword. Philip, crucified. Matthew, slain by an axe. James, beaten and stoned. Matthias, stoned and beheaded. Andrew, crucified. Mark, dragged to pieces. Peter, crucified. Paul will go on to be beheaded. Jude, crucified. Bartholomew, crucified. Thomas, killed by spear. Luke, hung. Simon, crucified. John is the only one who didn't die a violent death because he was exiled in Patmos. Do you see a theme? It is just, it is too easy and too cheap and too much of a cop out to go, oh, this old Christian thing, no, it's just not true. Um, or engage with it a little further as people have with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. They might have believed that this was important, but, but they could have died for a lie. Maybe they were wanting to make up some kind of religion and get some following and people die for lies. We know that that's psychologically possible, sure. Can you imagine being, I don't know, Thomas? And you were part of the rest of the gang who had made up this story about a resurrected Jesus so that you could get whatever. And you start to see Philip, Matthew, James, killed, killed, killed. And you know that you've made this thing up. You're not getting all the way to Thomas by the time you go, actually, sorry, it's a lie. I don't know about you, but when I'm tempted to lie, it's so that I will get stuff that is good and I will avoid stuff that is bad. Yeah? You don't die for a lie that you know to be a lie. It's just psychologically incoherent to say that the apostles made all this stuff up. Look at how they died. And these were the same guys who were hiding scared in a lounge room when Jesus was crucified. How do you make sense of this change? The resurrection is true. Here's the big thing that lays behind the apostles' lives and death and Paul's chapter 11. It's resurrection hope. It is real, solid, I've seen it, hope that there is a life beyond. 
that this life here is not it and when held up in comparison to eternity, it is the blink of an eye. They'd seen it. They'd seen Jesus. They knew that the only hope of enjoying eternal life, life beyond the grave, was to be forgiven by this Jesus, to be restored into relationship with God, to be welcomed into his new creation. And so they were willing to suffer for Christ, knowing that any suffering for him now will be more than made up in the eternity to come. Friends, there are all sorts of things that threaten our faith. I rattled off a few of them before. Things that wear us down and cause us to doubt. Is it all true? Paul's hardships serve as a great comfort for us, especially in our own hardships. The gospel is true. That this is not myth and legend. Paul's hardships are a great comfort for us as we continue to fall in sin, as we continue to reflect honestly on the state of our lives and we go, would God really love me? Would he have me? Paul's hardships say, there is a saviour who has died for every one of your sins. Look to him. And in the meantime, God really is working all things for your good, but I can't see the good. The fact that Paul was willing to live and suffer and die as he did is one of the many comforts that we have that that promise is true. That that God really is working things for good. You do realise that we are here today because of the Apostle Paul. Because of Jesus, yes, that he testifies to. But because the Apostle Paul lived and suffered as he did. Think about the millions and billions of people that will be in glory for eternity because Paul got on another ship, because he was willing to bear his back again. This is the God who has demonstrated that he does work all things for good. Paul is a great gift to us that the gospel is true. Friends, the tomb is empty. As you go to the funeral of a loved one who, who was in the Lord, but, but you're tempted, you, you're there and you see the body and you go, will I really see them again? Will they really be resurrected? Is this heaven? Paul's hardships says, yes, it is true. He saw it. Why else would you go through what he did? Paul was able to do it, confident in the truth that there is a powerful saviour. So that even and especially in his weakness, there is a saviour who will be faithful to us to the end as he was to Paul. Paul, who can boast about being lowered to the ground in a basket, confident the Lord Jesus would raise him up in glory. Friends, the gospel is true. Don't leave it. There is no hope apart from it. Whatever is happening in your life, Jesus is your saviour. Jesus is your risen Lord. Might we continue to stir and point each other to this truth, And we can be so thankful that there have been those like Paul and uniquely like Paul willing to go through what they did that we would have confidence that we really are in touch with the living God through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we thank you that you are mindful of us, that you know us, you know us intimately and you care for us. And so you do know our doubts, you do know our struggles, you do know the things that we're not quick to admit to anyone, maybe not even ourselves. And so we thank you for the many gifts that you have given us to guard and grow our faith, including Paul. And I want to ask, please, particularly for those of us here this morning whose faith is wobbling, who feel like they're about to slip, hold on to them, Father, by the power of your word. Among your people might we be those who, above all else for each other, keep pointing each other to Jesus, to the truth particularly as hard things come into our life, give us great comfort that the Lord Jesus in the ultimate suffering brought about eternal good. Paul, who saw this Jesus, was willing to suffer too. And so please give us the strength to endure, uh, to be able to boast not in ourselves and our strength, in our weakness as we cling to a powerful saviour. So please, Father God, hold on to us, bring us to the end. We look forward to seeing Jesus, touching him, walking with him, eating with him, being with his people for eternity. And so we pray this in his name. Amen.